This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. From North State Public Radio in Northern California, I'm Jennifer Jewell. As we look toward the heartfelt month of February, on the near side of which is the dormant and root growth-focused season of winter, and on the far side of which is the temptation and electricity of spring in the not-too-distant future, we're joined this week by P. Annie Kirk, owner and founder of Redbird Restorative Gardens, reminding us that it is in finding sanctuary in the garden that is us, in healing ourselves first, we can best help heal the many wounds of the world. Annie writes, Your space can be your hallelujah backup choir to your restorative life, where notes of peaceful and sacred nourish ship are sung for you, your senses and the needs of your heart. Annie joins us today from her home and garden farm in Oregon. Welcome, Annie. Thank you for this time and this space. Yeah, I'm really excited to connect with you. And for people out there that might not be familiar with your work and your way in this world, give us a little bit of a view into your plant and garden life right now. Mm, right now. So that has me in the season. That's, that's the seasonal speak for me. Um, I am, I'm currently practicing my craft here in the beautiful state of Oregon. And, um, in this season of my career, I have the privilege of stewarding landscapes for well-being and helping, helping those that are very similar in my shoes, my boots, so to speak, um, that are the Oh, the highly sensitive types that are often knee deep in caring for others, whether that's recognized or not recognized, but we're the keepers of all moving parts. And, and as effectors, having a safe place, sacred place that, that is nourishing, that reminds us of our true nature, that's, that's the work I'm currently doing and feel so privileged to do because that's that really gets to that piece of well-being so that we can go on and take good care of others mm-hmm. so so i i have this i have this privilege Jennifer, to work with folks to keep those spaces um, as keepers of all the moving parts <laughs> and the joy of it the joy <laughs> of it yeah to not to not always be centered in the the hard slog of it, which so much of life can be, um, but to focus on the the joy of it and the moments that refuel us. And you you do this work, Annie, in a couple of different ways. So I'd love you to walk people through the different branches of what you do. And, and, and I'm not even sure I know all of them, but I am very familiar with your, uh, your landscape design and consultation work with, with clients, with mm-hmm. your really 
what I find very peaceful and encouraging mentorship in this way of being on social media and where I happen to find you is Instagram. And then I know you do this on a personal basis in your own life as the kind of seed from which you lead out into the wider world. Mm, Beautifully said. Thank you. Well, you know, there are many branches. I think that's, you know, what's, what is above is so below. That means there's many roots. There's many roots to this work that I do. And on one side, there's a deep <laughs> and unwavering um, magic that keeps me focused on this idea that we are deeply connected to nature. We we have nature as our backdrop, as our hallelujah choir, absolutely, as our flash mob, our supporters. And so this idea of restorative, you know, the, the word that's, that's within the name of my company, restorative is certainly restorative in terms of our relationship with nature and how we treat and respect this planet, uh, restorative in the the renaissance of that connection. But it's also an opportunity, you know, my work with restorative landscapes, creating restorative landscapes, is to restore the the sacredness within, to recognize that that we are a sacred ecosystem unto ourselves. So when I'm working with someone, whether it be through coaching or mentorship, or one-on-one design, the, there's layers, the McCargian method, right? Layers in how we approach that um, relationship and that repair so that we can simultaneously, sometimes known or unknown, we can simultaneously heal landscape and heal ourselves. So restorative landscapes piece was first, came first to me in the career, uh, in this, which is my third career. I come from a biomed and social work background. Mm. And so bringing those two branches or having those two branches has really helped me on the science geek side, the part of me that really geeks out about what's going on physiologically with us as we are entering into spaces that have us feeling a sense of awe, like what's going on with all the work that is done on the healing garden side, the, the, the theory and the evidence-based research, I mean, that's delicious stuff. And that's how I entered into, into this realm of what I believe is my, my life's calling, is to bring that uh, mental piece, the, the, the emotional aspect, as well as the mm, physical aspect. What's the healing that can occur? That's fantastic. Yeah. And delicious. That's what brought me to where I am now. What's entered into my life, um, not unlike many people that are in kind of a 50-some wisis, <laughs> not crisis, but wisis, like, why am I here, <laughs> sis? What's going on? What is this? Um, is the soul level, right? Is this, let's start really talking more about the mysterious, the intuitive, the instinctual pieces that we know to be true and how how can I Annie Redbird how can I help translate that 
how can I help translate that? So I've started to, um, in my own life, in this last year and a half, due to personal circumstances that I'm happy to share about, that lead to this, not unlike many others, family-related, is that in order for this landscape that I'm interacting with to really be my comrade, to be my closest friend, which is truly how I, what I believe, in order for that to be the case, it needs to be purposeful and meaningful and intentional, and I need to take some responsibility around that. Mm. I need to have some responsibility around around that rather than resistance or d- dismissiveness or disregard. And that's that's some tough push points. But I do think that, well, I'm just going to be very, very frank with you, is that I think that there has become a trend in the garden industry. And I'm, I'm saying it used to be a trend, let's call it passe, hopefully, where um, this instant grats and disposability has hit our industry. And it's, it's incredibly disfiguring for us as, as a community, as a, as a peoples on this planet, to think that we can create landscapes, sort of these insta landscapes, and that that enough will be, will be satisfying. And it's not. It's absolutely not. And to return to the mysterious, to return to the intuitive, the instinctual, the magic, the awe, the things that are not spoken about in science, that's that's where my mission is to, to take us, is to be a part of that stewardship, to say there's, you know, in the immutable laws of manifestation and abundance, there is the law of gender. We are both masculine and feminine. How are we bringing those things together? How is it that we can speak nature so that the reciprocity is there? Yeah. Reciprocity is there. So there's yeah. so so much to unpack you, right there. <laughs> I know, I know, sis. I know. <laughs> which is great, which is why we're here. And I know exactly what you're saying. It is at the heart of my work as well. This uh wanting to be part of the um rejection and resistance of our great love for the garden life, garden world, garden meaning to be um, hijacked by commodification and commercialization. And I, there are so many of us out there working on this front that I am very optimistic with you that that trend is of the past and it is our continued mission to make sure that it it remains there. Mm. There are, again, so many things that I um, I want to follow up with you there. One of them is the direct correlation between how our insides look and our outsides look, how our garden and our immediate nature is a direct reflection of how we treat and think about and feel about ourselves as individuals or as communities. And there's some very powerful, important lessons right there. Before we get there, let's go let's go back just a tiny bit because you you referred to a couple of uh, earlier circumstances in your life, your your previous careers and your your time of life right now as being very informative to your work. Where did you grow up? Who were the people and places and plants that grew you into a plant person 
advocating for healing and restorative space, Annie? Mm. I'm closing my, my eyes as you ask me that question, and I'm right back in the garden of my childhood. I'm right back there. I'm standing next to my Aunt Marianne, and we're talking about how to propagate <laughs> red geraniums. Mm. That was my first that and a jade plant. I grew up in San Jose, California, and, and those that know San Jose, um, no, albeit it was you know 50 years ago, um, those that know San Jose know you know that jade plant is not a house plant there. <laughs> it's something that we can we can have out in the landscape. And, and there was this there was this ginormous jade plant that had been given to my mom um, by second generation Japanese. Um, family and it was given to us as they were moving and they couldn't take the jade plant with them so the jade plant came to be at our house not unlike a lot of animals <laughs> that we adopted this jade plant and this jade plant was sort of this this feature um, on our patio on our patio garden area and from that jade plant we propagated many little jade plants and and so too the the red geraniums were a part of my mm, uh, sort of wand. They became this incredible um, doorway for me to play, play. I mean that with a capital P, to play with nature and to witness it as I, as I coaxed it, as I cared for it, as I interacted with it, I could make more geraniums and more geraniums and more geraniums. And those two plants um, were the, they are sort of deep within my memory, deep within my memory of, even to this day, <laughs> when I smell a geranium, I smell that geranium, it takes me all the way back, mm. all the way back to that moment. So I had the, you know, I had the pleasure of playing outside. And I say this pleasure now, it wasn't so much, it was a have to, it was a survival piece, which we can touch on growing up in the house that I did. But I had the pleasure of forming my first relationship with nature at a very young age, in a very positive way. It was truly an outlet. It was truly healing for me because inside my home was a great amount of disruption. Well, my father was very, uh, how should I put it? I'm trying to reframe it. <laughs> he was very well practiced in alcoholism. He was very preoccupied and, um, and our house needed to remain quiet to accommodate his addiction. And so we, my brother and I were, we were set outside to play. So that external space became home, um, building forts, running amok, climbing trees, getting dirty, all of those things, they were safe haven. They were a place for me who, as a little kid, I had a lot of big feelings, a lot of big feelings, and a lot of things I didn't understand, but intuitively were picking up, you know, a fast rate, highly sensitive type. And so nature and the outdoors uh, were my safe haven. And my mom was very purposeful when she found the house that we moved to when I was five. She moved us to a home that was across the street from our elementary school. This is back in the day when elementary schools were open 
on the weekends that you could actually go to them and they weren't locked up. Mm-hmm. And so we had this joy of like heading across the street to the school and, you know, climbing on the jungle gyms, climbing the trees and running all around on the grass. And those, those spaces, um, I spent an incredible amount of, of time in only later coming to realize that not everybody had that opportunity, mm-hmm. which becomes the theme for me all along and brings me to the season of my life now where the, uh, the season of caring for an older adult with Alzheimer's and dementia, caring for my mom and being her care ambassadress and caring for our toddler, our 2.9 year old wow. has me in the sandwich of sandwiches in that sandwich generation. And there's, let's just say a lot that goes on in a day Mm. and having moved, and this is a really like big turning point for me. We moved to our farm where we are now two years ago and I moved away from my gardens. I moved away from my beautiful cultivated sacred gardens, moved away from to a farm. I, so I left a very healing and external environment to an environment that is very rural and big, wide open space. And at that moment, I figured out, ouch, mm-hmm. <laughs> ouch, where's the context? Where's the context in which I see myself, that I'm able to identify myself? What do people do when they don't have their gardens? <laughs> so for the first time in my career, I was like, what is this? What is this strange place that doesn't have gardens? And I love this rural farm experience. I'm just going to take time to cultivate. So, oh my gosh, what do I do in the meantime? Where do I find my sanctuary? And at that moment, the universe responds and says, hey, hey, dear Annie. Hey, my little red bird. This is what we need to do. We need to turn to the garden within. The thing that's been neglected, the thing mm, that needs some soothing and caring. I'm Jennifer Jewell, and this is Cultivating Place. Annie Kirk is the owner of Red Bird Restorative Gardens in Oregon. She's sharing her purpose and path in helping others and herself empathically and scientifically to develop gardens and landscapes that are reflective of the sanctuary we are simultaneously cultivating within ourselves. We'll be right back for more. Stay with us. Hey, it's Jennifer. I definitely take sanctuary in my garden, and this is true of most gardeners I know. This conversation with Annie is bringing up so many interconnected and human threads for me. How my mother would walk through her garden in her mind while she was undergoing chemotherapy treatments. How I found solace most completely after her death by either being in the garden puttering slowly or laying on the couch and watching the trees move against the sky outside my living room window. It brings up the research we heard reported from Florence Williams in The Nature Fix of just having images of green outdoor spaces and plants reduced the anxiety and stress of urban high-rise workers. 
It's reminding me of Dean Kuyper in his family memoir, The Deer Camp, drawing correlations between inside and outside in terms of our human mental health being directly reflected by the chaos and disease in our natural planetary environment. And of course, it brings up Robin Wall Kimmerer's call to us all to return to a relationship of mutuality and reciprocity and responsibility with the lands in our lives, public or private. It is the last week of January. The first new moon and the lunar new year are behind us. The novelty of 2020 has settled into more of a familiarity. But the growing season, well, that is still in front of us, shiny and inviting. Our mental and our cultural and our environmental health is there for all of us to nurture, inside and out. Now, back to our conversation with Annie Kirk and Redbird Restorative Gardens. This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. We're back now with Annie Kirk of Redbird Restorative Gardens. We left off with Annie having shared with us her personal childhood experiences, coming to realize how gardens and nature can provide sanctuary for us inside and out. And as we come back, she shares how this translated into helping herself and others create such spaces. And that garden, it held our home up. It also rooted our home. Each vignette of that garden um, had a different story, had a different color line, a different storyline. And, you know, it was a place I brought people to teach them, Mm. to um, demonstrate and it was definitely, this just so important, mightily important when we think about healing gardens, is it was my, my laboratory. It was my laboratory. Not just, oh, is that enough sunlight for that plant? Or mm, do I need to change the irrigation on that plant? No, 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 no. I'm talking about the creative, the divine coming through and the sort of plant recipes, putting this with that. How does that look? How do they feel together? What sort of view does that mean? What interaction am I having with nature, with wildlife? It became a laboratory Mm -hmm. for creativity. So creativity, when we're talking about healing gardens, it's it's the missing beat. Mm. It's the heartbeat. It's It's this amazing, magical thing that nature allows and affords us to tap into. It's a creativity. And that's when that, when that brain goes offline and that laboratory, that garden, that laboratory, it allowed me to go offline and be creative, to be connected, connected. And as I see it, as I'm moving, motioning my hands, connected with the divine, mm-hmm. uh, whatever you call divine in your vernacular. But it's, it was this laboratory for connection, deep connection. And that pathway from the lessons our garden, the so many lessons our gardens have to offer us if we are present and open to them. And sometimes even if we're not, sometimes the garden knocks us over the head and says, 
you have to learn this this lesson right now. But it is interesting to me how it was the losing of that physical space, the, the, the transitioning away from that physical space that allowed you to access some of its most important lessons. Mm-hmm. And of course, as you've intimated, and anyone who has transitioned away from a garden in their life may know, they are like any loved one. They're transitioning away from the physical nature mm-hmm. of them in many ways brings a much greater presence as much as it is an absence. And that uh, I have found with my long past mother. I have found with several of my past gardens. And I think those are interesting lessons for us to be awake to and pay attention to. So mm-hmm. walk us through or describe for us what led you to moving away from biomedical field and sociology and putting those two integration into founding Red Bird Restorative Garden Design? Mm. It's a great story. Thank you for asking. Um, <laughs> I was, it was, it's about loss. It's about the beautiful, beautiful piece of loss. I was pursuing a different career uh, idea, and I was on a magic carpet ride um, in, in a relationship, and the relationship was exiting fast, uh, exiting fast, and I found myself on a um, relationship hiatus. It had been prescribed to myself and my partner at the time that we just take a break from one another to sort some things out. And then after 90 days, we would come back and um, (laughs) see where we were at. And it was during that 90 days that I returned to gardening. And this is is back sometime. This is in the late uh, 90s. And I created this entire garden. I just went to town in Tucson, Arizona, Mind you, I'm, I'm from the Pacific Northwest, so I was in a completely different ecosystem. And I went to town in Tucson, Arizona. It's kind of a song in that. Mm-hmm. And put together put together this garden. And the time I'm, I'm simultaneously grieving this, like, change that's coming in this relationship. And I can sense that deeply. Like, mm, there's a change. There's a loss here. Um, having become familiar with that loss because I had just lost my father the feeling of loss. Um, and I was so in knee deep in therapy and knee deep in this garden, creating this garden. And all I could do was just create this garden. I mean, that's what I needed to do. And I can remember two instances. One, I'm digging a hole to plant a salvia. And after I've done a massive amount of research about, you know, that zone, what I can plant in that zone. I put together a plant palette and all of this. I'm digging that hole and I hear, you are a mother. What is that about? What, what is that? Who said that? You know, I had one of those moments. You are a mother. You are a mother to the earth. Okay, so that's really curious. Have I, so I have this experience. And then the other experience is I have a friend come over and he helps me hook up this irrigation system. I 
they've done an all, a complete sort of inline trip irrigation system. And he's helping me connect it up with a backflow. Mind you, this is not my background at the time. And he says to me, you know, Annie, there's a landscape architecture <laughs> um, program at the University of Arizona. You, you seem to have a knack for this. You know, you might consider checking it out. And through the process of checking it out, the day I applied for that program, um, after doing research on healing gardens, because I wanted to put together, wanted to piece together what was going on for me, is the day that relationship ended, hmm. came to a conclusion. And so I, I was standing at the crossroads saying, okay, I'm healing by interacting with the garden. I know from my previous experience working with folks with persistent mental illnesses that when they were on the landscape crew, they required less medication and they were, you know, they seemed to express a higher quality of life and they smoked less, smoked less cigarettes. I'm wondering, is there, there must be a connection here that we don't need to go all the way to hospitalization before we find the garden? Is there a way for me to enter into this field of landscape architecture and study and be a proponent of healing gardens? Why, yes, there is. So then I enroll and I'm in my, my first studio. I'm in a room, a, a design studio coming from a science background. I'm in a, a studio full of artists and creativity and we're given our first studio project, a make-believe project. And I don't know a, you know, eighth scale from a tenth scale or any of that. And we're assigned this assignment. And this is the sort of assignment where you, this is where you're, you're going to stay in this program or you're not going to stay in this program. <laughs> and um, we can call it a true initiation because what happened for me at that point is I stay up and I pull an almost an all-nighter. And I'm attempting to do what other people are doing. And I'm looking around and I'm like trying to put together this design. <laughs> and I decide I need to go like get a couple hours sleep before we present in front of, you know, a jury, a true design school experience. And so I go and I, I take a little siesta and I mean a little siesta. And I have this sort of dreamlike memory come past of being in kindergarten, again, five years old, go back to the red geraniums. I have this experience standing in, and I'm seeing myself in kindergarten presenting to this class my coloring that I had done that day. And it was of a red bird. And when I presented it to the class, they laughed at me. And I can remember Mrs. Lappin she put her, her hand on my shoulder and she tapped it and said, don't worry, Annie, there are red birds too. And that for me was my initiation into the design world, that I could come in as, you know, uh, an outlier, a rebel. <laughs> um, and I could come into this design realm and I could speak for the red birds. I could speak for those that aren't necessarily seen, that aren't necessarily heard, and we could create safe space. Mm. And that began, that began this, this Redbird experience. 
that we do it the Redbird way. You know, talk to contractors, oh, it's a Redbird project. Yeah, it's a Redbird project. We do it the Redbird way and a way that honors the earth and honors the soul. And that is how Redbird became restorative. Uh, I like I like that story. <laughs> when you get a good teacher, you get a really good teacher yeah. who stays with you for your entire life. Yeah. Yeah. I'm Jennifer Jewell, and this is Cultivating Place. Annie Kirk became a restorative garden designer, coach, and bridge for people to their lands after several long life lessons on where we find sanctuary, which is as much about nurturing the gardens within us as the gardens external to us. We'll be right back for more. Stay with us. out loud this week. I am now back in my own home garden from my first big public events of the year. The first for the Sacramento Perennial Plant Society and the second for the Hardy Plant Society of Oregon. A sold out event at which I had the great honor and joy of meeting 300 of you. What energizing community and common ground. The reception around the new book, The Earth in Her Hands, which I was able to share the first advanced copies of, has left me kind of speechless and really humbled, but also clear, very, very clear, that the earth is in all of our hands. How we hold it, how we cultivate it, this is on us. How we lead the way forward from our best gardening selves can make all the difference in the world. Thank you to everyone that I met in Sacramento and in Portland. Your welcome was sanctuary of its own kind. Next up, the Northwest Flower and Garden Show in Seattle, and then back in home territory at Mrs. Dalloway's Books in Berkeley on February 28th, and at home in Chico, California, for a local launch party with North State Public Radio on March 1st, before heading to the Northeast for a month. Wow. Together we grow. I am hoping to share and cultivate place with so many of you. Now, back to our conversation with Annie Kirk and Redbird Restorative Gardens, sharing her cultivation of place with all of us. This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. We're back now to our conversation with Annie Kirk of Redbird Restorative Gardens. When we left off, we had just heard the story of how her work took on the name Redbird Restorative Gardens. As we come back, she shares the foundational lessons of her previous garden to her work and goes on to share her empathic process in helping people listen to and relate to the spaces they're cultivating. So my process in working with people is there is a true process. So yeah, you call me, we talk, but there's a sensing. I think that that is where my career, my experiences has brought me is that are we standing as individuals, as spirits, are we standing in a place where we have a shared 
uh, language and appreciation for space and nature and earth and the spirit of the space. Now, folks who find me aren't uh, necessarily mm, tapped in or as attuned, maybe as I am to the, the genus loci of space, and they find me to be their translator, to translate their hearts into space and their goals for rich transformation and transition. And so seeing that that landscape becomes mm, this laboratory, to go back to that, Mm -hmm. to be this collaboratory where it can nurture and then they nurture it. So there's a separation, the divide is, is closed. So my process is at the front end (laughs) At the front end, we spend a lot of time just being with one another and talking and sharing. And for me, it's, there is no small talk and there is no artificial space making. Like I'm not, I'm not really capable of either of those things. I've learned that in my career to let that go. Um, That there are others that can take the trends piece and they can, they can take the instant landscapes. They can, they can do that. And that's all well and served for, for them. But for me, as we enter in relationship, we're, we're in this for a while. We're going to curate the space. And on our design team is a part of me that translates the voice of nature as an empath. You know, what am I reading? What am I sensing? What's the reverence and the spirit of this place? And then that's what helps inform our design. So when I get asked, what's your style? Mm. I laugh <laughs> often, like, um, what do you mean like today? <laughs> or do you mean like, you know, what's my style in terms of the shoes I'm wearing today? I can give you that. But if you ask me my design style, my design style is your soul, your heart, your dreams, your losses, those. That's what that's what my style is, is to take that and reconnect you with nature so that that you then can experience a more profound reverence for yourself and for space and for the nature. Mm-hmm. The sanctity, it's sanctity. So my process at the front end is um, is get to know you. <laughs> that's what I call my, <laughs> that's what I call my initial consultations are right? get to know you. Let's get to know one another a little bit, you know, a little bit more and let me, let me be on site to sense and as close to your heart as I can be so I can help translate how you can start infusing your space so it feels more like sanctuary and it reflects the sanctuary that you're seeking within. So sanctuary insight. What is the insight that I can provide you in your sightline? Like wh- how and when do you bring in the plants as symbols and companions in this process? Mm. So the process, the process, you know what I, my clients will tell you is that I'm not talking to you about plants anytime soon. Right. The first thing, first thing we're going to do is we're going to talk about you, how that space becomes you, how it becomes you. And so that's the first thing. And so to, for me at this point at at age two, you know, this garden at age Mm -hmm. two, this, the, one of the uh, most fascinating and crudest experiences I've had is, um, is in this deep sort of site analysis. 
that what I, there is wind here. There is wind. I am dealing with an element of wind in my in this garden creation that I have never experienced. And so I am, I, I, I yeah, that's, that's not even to speak of the rabbits, the coyotes, and the deer. <laughs> the wind has been like the first, first thing to, 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 to sort of mm, stand with. Mm-hmm. Uh, as opposed to battle against, to mm-hmm. stand with like, okay, so this becomes a wind garden. And then for me, where I go is, okay, what is that a message of for me at this point in my life? What does that represent? You know, what do the ancients say about wind? What is what is the aesthetic that can that I can I can tap into um, that borrows that energy of wind? So at this stage in, at two, um, <laughs> Like how many how many more plants do I need to stake stake up today? (laughs) (laughs) So oh okay, there goes all of the fall color blown off going across the field. There goes my fall color. Mm, Okay, I I have found myself standing out like in the middle, just sort of like laughing. Like okay, so mm, I'm trying to control you. Oh, that's interesting. Let me try that again. But in terms of when it comes to plant material, for myself, honestly, as a designer, I have to be a little bit careful to check myself about how planty I want to get with my clients or my clients want to get, how planty they want to get. What I mean by how planty is not just how many (laughs) we want to bring into a space, but I believe that our relationship connectively so as a community i believe i'd like to believe that we understand that plants are medicine period right but when we when we go on on to a sort of an individual level each person uh has a different sort of vibe with plants and you know i may think that you know this particular ito peony is the bomb but for some reason you know that seed head is is undesirable for a client. So for me, when we're in the plant discussion, we get way down and deep into here's how that plant moves through its seasons. And I'm checking and watching and listening about that appeal. Is that appeal to your senses? And so that's on an aesthetic and also a deeper level. And then we're looking at those recipes, those plant recipes. Um, what is it that we can bring into your space that suits your transformation, your growth. What are the sort of, I like to call them, as you know, mantras. What are the plants, what is the mantra that these plants are suggesting to you? And that's that's separate from me. So that's why I don't have a style. It's what is the essence? What is the spirit that you want these plants to help create for you in this space? Mm-hmm. And so it's it's constantly going back between the aesthetic and the medicine, the aesthetic and the medicine. You know, medicine as in the essence, the flower essence, the plant essence, the energy that the plant brings to the space. Mm-hmm. And what is the, what is, I call them outfits. What are the plant outfits that we're creating now? And what will we want to bring in later? So always leaving, leaving the opportunity to curate that garden as we come to understand. Because once you put a plant in a garden, it's not a chair, right? It's not a chair. It's not just going to sit there. That plant has a life of its own. And do you find that the get-to-know-you phase, the 
intuitive reading of of the person you're working with and the space in which uh, and with which they are developing this sanctuary inside and out. It sounds like it's as much about how space is laid out as it is about how light moves through it, about how weather moves through it, uh, and maybe either one of or any one of these different lenses that we are given by the garden or our outside space, even if it's not a, you know, official garden may come to the fore for you based on who you're who you're working with and what their goals and kind of desires are mm-hmm. is that right mm-hmm. that is right that's a that's i think the key word in that is lens so as i'm spending time with someone in that so sort of that intuitive reading getting i'm shifting my lens sort of constantly one one is you know what are the practicalities because, sister, we have to be practical about this use of this space. Because I really believe in sort of um, what's the load? What's the load that a space can bear? Just like what's the load that we can bear? So that's one. So there's a lens shifting that is constantly occurring. Um, I'm listening and I'm listening. Um, I'm listening to what that person is saying, what that couple is saying, what that family is conveying, what that developer is conveying, whomever. And I'm plugged in, I'm tuned in, I'm listening, and I'm reading the landscape. I'm reading the landscape on different levels, truly. I'm, I'm reading that through the different elements, you know, through light, through wind, through sound. I'm using all of my senses to pick up on and help translate or interpret what this landscape is saying. It's capable. What is its carrying capacity? And when I've had the pleasure of being on more historic properties, where there has, there is a design to be renewed, there is uh, often for me some messages. I don't really know how else to capture that for you. There's just a sense that I pick up on or I see that helps me relay to the client, this is inherent in your space. This is, you know, this is what I'm reading about this space. And and this is what that space is actually asking for in terms of your stewardship. And at that point, I'm, I'm a bridge between the person and place. And that's what I believe good site analysis is. Yeah. Is that when we are, when we are with sight and, you know, it, it goes to, you can't bum rush this. You can't bum rush this. You know, it's important when, let's say you purchase a new property, right? Whether it's, been stripped down in its new development, or if it's um, revered and 100 plus years old, I tell clients when they call me, we're so excited, we just got a new house, blah, 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 blah. I say, great, great. And you call me, call me in six months. Yeah. <laughs> because it's important for me that you know, you know something about your site, you, you've witnessed something about it. And that that's, that's where we can start conversation. Truly, that connection. Hmm. I like that. <laughs> I think about analogies with our human relationships, and I think about your, uh, you know, your first loves of that red geranium and that jade plant, and and how 
imprinted they are in your mind and heart. And, you know, it is not dissimilar to our first loves in, in human form. And, you know, those early fumbling starts with love relationships and what it's like to be trying to get to know your piece of land those first two, three years and those awkward first kisses, as it were. <laughs> and um, so when you when you think back over your your own evolution on this empathic pathway um, and you see and witness what you do with people on this path for themselves, no matter where they might be on it. Why is this important, Annie? Why is this important to them individually? Why is it important in our world, do you think, that we strive to be this intentional and this uh, thoughtful with our gardens and their their spaces? Mm. You must be inside my brain. Um, <laughs> it's crowded in there, so find a seat. Get comfortable. <laughs> no, I... I, I was asked this question in a little bit different way just recently. Um, I'm sharing with a mentor course idea, uh, an online course idea that I have been cogitating. And she was reflecting back to me, you know, her, her thoughts. And um, not unlike when you go into your thesis advisor and you're like, hey, I got an idea. <laughs> and so, uh, or at least for me. So she was, I was sharing her my thesis, so to speak. And she, she said, you know, Annie, there's two parts to this. Would you be okay if this first part of people recognizing, you know, their connection with nature, um, their sense of sanctuary within and how it's tied to nature, would you be okay with some, like, not moving on from there? Because you really have two distinct parts. The second part being, let's create this space together you know, let me, let me help you and coach you through this. So that's, so it's part one, part two. And so she said, would you be okay if this is, if this point sanctuary within is as far as people go with you? And she had some reasons why about that. So it's similar to your question, at least for me. And my response to her, to you would be, yes, this, why is this important? This is important because when we meet ourselves, particularly those of us who are, who are so astute at taking good care of others, when we meet ourselves and find that the only safe place for us is our wild, wild nature, our true, true nature, this deeply wild and calm and serene and soothing nature of ours, when we meet that, and we embrace the fact that we have the power to be sanctuary without a garden, then, then I, I feel that that's peace on earth. That's peace on earth. And that's kindness. That's like truly kindness. That is self-worth found. That's worth found and found in a garden. And that garden, like for me, that garden is taken away. I'm left knowing that I have this garden that's rich within me. And then I move on from there. And so I was thinking about this 
this conversation with the mentor and, and to your question, really, as caretakers, and there's so many of us, whether we wear the label or not, <laughs> that we know so well how to take good care. We know so well how to take care. And if we are recovering and discovering our sanctuary, if we are healing our true nature by this beautiful gift of nature and with nature, then it, it says to me that we will truly be able, if we take that responsibility as caretakers to take good care of ourselves, be sanctuary, we'll be able to teach those and steward those whose lives we touch and affect to take good care of the planet. So I really see this whole crisis, this whole crisis that we're experiencing in our environments. It's coming back to when we know ourselves as sacred, then we're gonna treat the planet as sacred. So it comes right back to that. And that's why it's important. That's why it's important to acknowledge your redbird. Take good care. Thank you very much for being a guest on the program today. It has been a pleasure to spend time with you. Mm. Likewise, yes, likewise. Annie Kirk is the owner and founder of Redbird Restorative Gardens. Our conversation and her work remind us that it is in finding sanctuary in the garden that is us, in healing ourselves first, we can best help heal the many wounds of the world. Join us again next week when we continue our multi-week series on healing in the garden, and we're joined by Naomi Sachs, founder and director of the Therapeutic Landscapes Network, a knowledge base and gathering space about healing gardens, restorative landscapes, and other green spaces that promote health and well-being. The primary focus of the network is evidence-based design in healthcare settings. There are so many ways that people engage in and grow from and heal from the cultivation of their places. Cultivating Place is a listener-supported co-production of North State Public Radio. Over on cultivatingplace.com this week, make sure to check out the pictures of Annie Redbird's restorative landscapes. They will inspire you. Our show producer and engineer is Matt Fiddler. Executive producer is Sarah Bohannon. Original theme music is by Ma Muse, accompanied by Joe Craven and Sam Bevan. Cultivating Place is distributed nationally by PRX, Public Radio Exchange. Is Cultivating Place on a public radio station near you? Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.